They're tearing down the old St. Laurentius Church in Fishtown. That's the way Andre Sue Peterson's article from The Last World magazine begins. And she writes this article making an observation on behavior having certain outcomes. And she has other points in her article as well. But I found it fascinating that in this this historical backdrop of this 19th century Polish Catholic church in um, Philadelphia in Fishtown, I found it very interesting that in this she found the the seeds of decay in this community being a community who walks away from biblical standards. So that the history of this community, all the way back to the revolution, they were, they were um, uh, profitable in their businesses, making steel ships and everything that came around that of, of sails and masts and steam engines and, and all of this. And they had um, factories for, for weaving that came around this. And they weren't wealthy, she says, but they were well-to-do. And they, the, the community itself was a healthy community. And she says what happened then is the 60s happened. And she says this. Ah, the 60s. Well, I remember those, quote, turn on, tune in, drop out hippie days. Rejection of our parents' robotic morality, nine to five work ethic, and materialism. But I also remember that after a decade, something strange began to happen. Quietly. One by one, the smarter dropouts of my generation underwent a kind of rapture from the scene and returned to the lifestyle we had rejected. Marriage, industriousness, and other bourgeois fundamentals. They didn't preach it, but they did it. So, in the, and this is brought out in other histories. She quotes some other historians who have, have talked about not only Fishtown, but other towns as well. And what happened um, from as we moved from the, the 50s, 40s, 50s, after the World War, and then into the 60s and 70s. And the deterioration of certain communities and what actually caused that. Was it merely an economic downturn or was it also a, a turn in morality, a turn in, in values of that community? And she says, she writes this, it was in fact the working class of Fishtown and other Fishtowns USA that never recovered from its fling with nihilism and non-traditional morality. When the upper classes by and large came to their senses, Fishtown went from bad to worse by abandoning religion and marriage, practicing casual divorce, and dropping out of the labor force in large numbers. It developed from a community where married moms and dads raised children on blocks where everybody knew each other, and neighbors had tacit permission to spank the other family's kid if it was out of line to a sitting duck for external invasion by New York and Philadelphia real estate prospectors. So there's the truth that when lost people apply biblical principles, their life, their earthly life, gets better. That's why in counseling, I can counsel a lost person with biblical principles. And if they apply those biblical principles, they are going to have a better life. And if, if they apply those principles to raising their children, their children will grow up to be more productive in society. I mean, it is good when we teach our children not to lie and not to steal and not to covet and not to commit adultery and to honor their mother and father and things like that, right? 
there is an earthly benefit. And she shows through Fishtown that when the, mo- the morality, those commitments in a community turn aside, the community falls apart. Now, for those of us who know Christ, there is a spiritual element in the works that we work that produce fruit in our lives, is there not? A lost person cannot do good things and have both an earthly and a spiritual benefit to them. There could be an earthly benefit, but not a spiritual benefit. Those works are filthy rags because they're done out of their own strength and their own reason. And they're not done to glorify the God who is their creator. But for believers, we engage in the same kind of behavior. We are obeying the the laws of our king. And there are earthly benefits, but there are also spiritual benefits. And the instigator of those works, there's a spiritual difference, is there not? There there is a, a spiritual difference between who is one who is justified by faith... And then that justification by faith exudes in good works planned beforehand by our Father in heaven. And a difference between that and the one who they don't have justification by faith and the good works are out of their own strength. So there are works that must follow if we're truly justified. And the Bible clearly teaches that. It is not works-based salvation. It is justification by grace that leads to good works. And yet that is confused in our world today. Even in Christianity, it is confused. In the lost world, there are still people who think if we just all live by the Sermon on the Mount, we'll gain God's favor. They don't know who that God is. It is a nebulous other being, a God of their own making. But they think that's the promise that comes when the Sermon on the Mount is written written to those who are justified by faith. And it's not saying go do this. It's saying go, go be this. This is who you are. These are, the, these are the characteristics of the members of the kingdom. This is the whole concept that Isaiah has in his mind today. In our text before us, Isaiah is talking to a nation that is full of sinful people and saved people in Old Testament language, those who are turned to Yahweh and those who are not turned to Yahweh, those who have repented before him and those who stand on their own counsel and try to try to live their lives as if God is not watching them and doesn't see what they're doing. And when God rises up, he acts and he judges the wicked and that same fire that he judged with which he judges the wicked, he is purifying his people. That's been a constant message in Isaiah, is it not? It is also another message for us today. But we see this interworkings. If if you are truly Yahweh's people, your life will look like the king. Your life will look like the Messiah because the Messiah comes to, to be righteousness and justice in the world. And his people are the outworking of that righteousness and that justice. And so he is not ashamed by saying by, by telling them, you, you want to walk with Yahweh? Then do this. And what he's meaning by that, do this, and that's what people do who have been redeemed by Yahweh. And so we have the same message for us. We don't want to teach any semblance of salvation by works. But if we teach anything that says your salvation doesn't have to produce works in order for it to be, to, to be true, to be real, to be proven by that, then we're off the pages of Scripture. Because the pages of Scripture constantly remind us that those who are in Christ will begin to be sanctified, will begin to walk the road that Jesus walked. Their lives will be conformed into the likeness and image of his life. And if that's not happening, there is no, there's no reason for you to take comfort or hope that you are actually in Christ. 
Now, Isaiah isn't going to get into all of that. Isaiah just says, listen, the Lord is going to rise up. And when he rises up, you will either walk like this or you will walk like this. Because it's a given indisputable truth. So today when we hear these verses, we're not hearing them as old covenant Jerusalem. We're hearing them as new covenant heading to the new Jerusalem. And we hear the commands to walk in light of who we are. Not to walk in a way to become become something, but to walk in light of who we are in Christ. Now our text has been already read for us today, so I'm not going to read it all again. But in this chapter, we are in our sixth woe. And um, the next week, we will look at the next two chapters, which are a very broad summary of destruction and future blessing. Uh, One chapter is what's going to happen when God rises against the wicked. The other chapter is what's going to happen when he redeems his people. And then after chapter 35, we move into into the, the last section of the first section of Isaiah, where we get into that historical account in, in, beginning in, in chapter 36. Our text today in chapter 33 assumes some of that knowledge of that historical account, but many of our chapters so far have alluded to and assumed knowledge of that. So we will get into that in more depth as we close out this first section of Isaiah in the next few weeks. But what we see here in the sixth woe, the sixth ah, In the confused ESV, I think, on the ahs and woes, we are shown four confirmations surrounding Yahweh's exaltation. Four confirmations surrounding Yahweh's exaltation. The first, a pronouncement against Assyria confirms their destruction. Look at verse 1. Ah, you destroyer. So here we have language dealing with this, as Isaiah has done so many times, using language to deal with a specific country, a specific nation that doesn't name them. But we know who it is because we've been steeped in Isaiah now for months. Ah, you destroyer, speaking of Assyria, you yourselves have not been destroyed. You yourselves have not been destroyed. They are the destroyer, but yet they haven't been destroyed. They have been the traitor, but yet none has betrayed them. When you, but God says, when you cease to do that, when you cease to do your betraying, when you cease to do your destroying, you will be destroyed and they will betray you. So this brings us back into the promise that God has had over and over and over that even though he is going to whistle and Assyria comes to do his bidding and he's, they're coming because God says, you will come and you will judge my, you will be my arm of judgment against my people. And then, because you haven't done it to glorify me, you've done it to glorify yourself. You haven't done it according to my plans. You've tried to exceed those plans with greater destruction. Then I'm going to rise against you and I will destroy you and you will be betrayed. The people who you think are under your thumb will now rise up against you. So this first pronouncement is, is nothing but a restating of what we have heard over and over and over. And remember our audience. He's speaking to Assyria, you destroyer, you, you who have not yet been destroyed. But the audience is his people in Jerusalem, reminding them that this nation that has yet to fully rise against them, that yet to fully rise against them in, in the physical war terms, God is going to have his way with them. So he starts out just with this reminder. A pronouncement against Assyria confirms their destruction. But quickly in verse 2, we see this second confirmation surrounding Yahweh's exaltation. A prayer from God's people confirms their dependence. 
Look at verse 2. It says, this is Isaiah praying on behalf of these people. And in this chapter, the way as we've seen in so many of the chapters, there's a constant switching back and forth from present to future, sometimes near future, sometimes far future, a constant switching back and forth from his rising himself up in judgment to his rising himself up in blessing, a constant switching back and forth, sometimes with with no warning or sign whatsoever between talking about the enemy nations and talking about his own people. We see that same here. So part of our struggle is to figure out Who's he talking about in what verses? And there's disagreement on that. Um, But the message is still the same, isn't it? Keep the message in your mind. God will arise. Those who are his enemies will be destroyed. Those who are his people people will be purified. That's the message. It's never obscured, even though some of the language makes us wonder who he's talking about at what time. Verse 2. Oh, Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Now, that should remind us of passages that we've already seen in chapter 25, verse 9, and 26, 18, but especially passages like this in chapter 30, verse 15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You said, no. We will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And you said, we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. And he goes on to talk about the destruction, and then he reminds them again in verse 18. Therefore, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For Yahweh is a God of justice, blessed are all those who wait for him. This waiting has been a brewing theme for us, hasn't it? It's been planted in us and it is constantly watered that we as a people are waiting on our God. He is the one who acts. He is the one who has perfect timing. He is the one who has perfect knowledge. He has all the power to do what he wants when he pleases. And our salvation is found in our resting. And he exalts himself to show mercy to us, to those who wait. And so this is what the prayer is from Isaiah in chapter 33, verse 2. Oh, Yahweh, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. So your version may say, may say, not say ours. It may say there, be their arm. I think it should be our. There's a, there's an obscure grammatical turn here that I think makes it our, and it definitely makes sense in the context. Be our arm every morning, be our strength every single morning, morning by morning, new mercies. I see. We just sang about the same, didn't we? So he is our strength every morning. Are we to be strong? Absolutely. Is it our own strength? No, it is his strength in us. And that's the prayer from Isaiah on behalf of these people. Be our strength, not just today, but every morning. Be that the beginning of our day. But he also says, be our salvation in the time of trouble. Now notice it doesn't say provide us salvation. It says you are our salvation. So be our salvation. You in your person, in your work, in your character, as we'll see in a moment, in your beauty, be our salvation in times of trouble. 
Verse 3, at the tumultuous noise, people flee. Now, that is when God rises up. And we've seen this kind of idea before that when God rises up, he's rising up in those words of a theophany, right? With earthquakes and clouds and lightning and and thunder. And so when God rises, Isaiah is praying, at that tumultuous noise, the people flee. You will lift yourself, you, when you lift yourself up, nations are scattered. You have all the power over those nations, And your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers as locusts leap it is leapt upon. So your spoil, that's plural there. So this is God against all the nations and all the nations are spoiled to God. And just as fast as as a locust jumps on his prey, just as fast and as sure as anything in nature is going to happen, this is what is going to happen. It is a surety. So so Isaiah is praying, listen, be gracious to us because we know at that time people will flee away from you because you are the powerful one. Use your strength on our behalf. Be our strength. Be our salvation. But we know that when you rise against others, they will not escape you. So we have a prayer of petition in verse 2. Verse 3, where I've jumped into without moving my outline, but Michael, my alter ego here, probably has already done it. A prayer of praise begins with verse 3. This praise goes 3, 4, 5, and 6, that the people will flee when God rises up. It's still a prayer directed toward Yahweh, that in his righteous rising, the people find reason to praise. Verse 5, Yahweh is exalted. For he dwells on high. Remember that. We see that over and over. But his dwelling on high will be important for us later in this text, won't it? It'll be important for us to remember that that on high is where Yahweh dwells. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. Again, a reminder of things that we have already seen. A reversal of what's happening in chapter 1. You remember all the way back in our first chapter, which was kind of the introduction to the introduction of Isaiah. In 26 and 27, we have these words. And I will restore your judges as at the first, because the judges have gone bad. And your, your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. And then it goes on to talk about rebels and sinners. So even in the first chapter, we have had these kinds of themes brought to us and consistently brought to us again. The righteous reign of the Messiah will be a reign of righteousness and justice. And he will rule and reign perfectly. We saw that earlier, didn't we? Specifically in chapter 9, but also in chapter 7 and chapter 11 in the messianic descriptions we saw there. So we see that the Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. But look what else it says. And he will be the stability of your times. So he's our strength every morning. And what does that produce? Stability in all of our times, in all of our days. And notice again, it's not just Yahweh providing this for us. It is Yahweh who is this. He himself, in his character, is the stability of our times. He is the abundance of salvation. He is wisdom, the abundance of wisdom and the abundance of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Maybe your verse says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. That's actually what the Hebrew says. I think the point is either that... the. the, That Yahweh has stored up fear for himself that he grants for his people. 
or that when they express the fear of the Lord, that is Yahweh's treasure. It is a treasure. Remember, God delights in us when we are living. We sang that last week, when we are living according to his plan and we are found in his son. He delights in us. And so it could very easily be that this, that this verse is the fear of the Lord is his treasure and he treasures it when his people act that way. Now, we've talked about the fear of the Lord several times, and I want to reiterate something I've been trying to make the point of. Sometimes we are so jealous to protect the close relationship that God has with us, the the like a brother relationship the New Testament brings that Jesus is for those um, who are are, um, connected with him, who have turned to him in repentance and faith. We are so jealous to protect that that we lose this grand picture of who God is. And that being before God should still cause us fear. It should cause us to go to our knees because of his righteous and perfect and holy character. But we're not going to, we're not fearing as believers for our eternal life. Because he's already placed that wrath on Christ. But we aren't to take it flippantly. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to give a, a, an idea that, that, that cheapens the biblical. But think about it this way. I'm not a horror flick person. I I don't like horror movies. But if you're watching a horror movie, do you know that it's not real? Do you know that it's not happening to you? And yet what happens when they orchestrate the jump? Right? You jump. You're fearful. Your heart pounds faster. And you know it's not real. And yet you still fear because the filmmakers present things to you that should make you fear. But you're safe, aren't you? Because it's only on film. Well, in a much grander and more beautiful way, we stand be- when we stand before the Lord, if we could see him like Isaiah did, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the glory. What did I, filling the temple with glory, what did Isaiah do? He came undone. Why? Because he came as a man who was a man of unclean lips from a people from unclean lips. And immediately, what does Yahweh orchestrate? He orchestrates the coal to come and touch his lips, and everything changes for him. He sees Yahweh in his glory as a redeemed man, not as a man who might be destroyed at any moment. So when we see the beautiful character of our God, our triune God, and we, if we could see him, all of the scriptures that describe him brought together, it should bring us fearfully to our knees, but not because we think he will destroy us, but because it's the only place we can be before our creator. So let's not cheapen the fear of the Lord by saying it's just reverence. Of course it's reverence. But if we have the opportunity to stand before him in all his glory, it would make us tremble. If it, makes, if it made men tremble before angels when they stood before them, how much more should we tremble before our creator God? Even as we're doing it in reverence and in worship. So the fear of the Lord is, it's our treasure, but this text could be saying it is also Yahweh's treasure. Well, the third part of this prayer, a prayer of lament, uh, there's debate on whether the prayer ceases at verse 6 or goes on. I'm saying it goes on because I think 7, 8, and 9 are talking about Jerusalem, not Assyria. Now, it could be Assyria. Everything that's said in there could be said of Assyria as well. But I think there are some markers in our text that say 7, 8, and 9, maybe not 10 through 12, but 7, 8, and 9 are talking about Assyria. 
So I'm categorizing this as another level of the prayer. There's a prayer of petition. There's a prayer of praise. There's a prayer of lament beginning in verse 7. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. Now, the heroes crying in the streets, that could easily be Assyria, right? After God raises himself up against them. But the heroes of Israel are crying in the, in the streets as well. And the envoys that are the envoys of peace weep bitterly. That matches the end of chapter 36. When we see the envoys that King Hezekiah sends to meet the envoys of Sennacherib, the last verse of the chapter says they come back weeping and tearing their clothes. Because the situation was that Hezekiah had paid this large tribute to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, in order to protect himself and his nation from, from Assyria. But Sennacherib violates that covenant and comes against them anyway. And so when they send their representatives and they see what the threat is to Yahweh and the size of the army, the representatives in, from Jerusalem come back weeping. And I think that's what's being referred to here. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. Now that's the same metaphor. Isaiah loves the picture of a highway. He uses it in multiple ways. But when the city is destroyed, the highway is deserted. Because there's no reason to be on it. It's not safe. There's no business to happen. There's no reason to be there. Everybody is either dead or cowering in their houses. The highways lie waste. The traveler waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Now that describes both, right? They made the covenant with Assyria and a covenant is broken. But it doesn't say who. But I think it's talking about the, the, the envoys weeping because Sennacherib violated his covenant. Cities are despised. There's no regard for man. This is the same language that's happened all the time when we talk about sin ravaging either a foreign nation or Israel itself. This is the kind of description that is made here. The land mourns and languishes. languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert and Bashan and Carmel shake their leaves. Now that's all talking about Fruitful places dying and becoming desert. And geographically, it kind of encircles Jerusalem. It's kind of the northeast and the northwest and the south and the southwest. So this is another reason I think we're talking about Jerusalem here. And it's a prayer of lament. Because of our disobedience, we are worthy of and receiving your judgment right now. The same as Assyria is. So this is the place, right? If God's people should pray, we should, we should, if we're going to pray anytime, we should pray when we're under his judgment. We should pray when he's disciplining us. We should pray when we see a nation around us disciplining us. Now, that's not the only time we're praying, but if we're not praying there, I doubt very seriously if we're praying other times. And this is very psalm-like, isn't it, through this? Prayers of petition, prayers of praise, prayers of lament. It is the believing side of Jerusalem, the remnant side of Jerusalem being spoken for by Isaiah, giving the example of what should be happening with all the nation and what it will lead to is their salvation. So the first two confirmations, a pronouncement against Assyria confirms their destruction and a prayer from God's people confirms their dependence. The third Confirmation: A proclamation from Yahweh confirms his dealings, first with Assyria and then with his people. Look at verse 10. Now, just notice this. Now, now, now. Now I will, now I will, now I will. Arise, lift, be exalted. 
says the Lord, myself, be exalted. Do you think God wants to tell something here? Do you you think he has a message for us? What is God going to do? He's going to act, isn't he? He is going to act, and he's going to act on his own behalf. He's going to act in his own strength, a strength that, that his people have already recognized. And he's going to act in his own time, now. It's upon them. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. So this is the same language we've seen that when God raises himself up, he's raising himself up to act. When he shows his presence, he's showing his presence for destruction of the wicked or salvation of his people. When his fire of judgment is is revealed, it is either revealed in a way to destroy his enemies or purify his people. Both things happen in Isaiah constantly at all times both together God is not rising once and then again once for judgment and then again for salvation he is rising to do his work and when he rises everything he does will be full of righteousness and justice because that's his character and that's what he brings when he rises that's why this whole messianic picture we're looking at and building in Isaiah is the picture of a kingdom that is ruled by the Messiah in perfect righteousness and perfect justice And therefore, those of us who are in the kingdom will exhibit those traits because our king is working through us. And we will see that in just a moment in our text. Look at verse 11. You conceive chaff, you give birth to stubble, your breath is a fire that will consume you, and the peoples will be as if burned to lime, like thorns cut down that are burned in the fire. Now, some of this could be about Jerusalem themselves. I mean, Jerusalem is one who, who conceived plans in themselves, and it would give birth to nothing, right? To wind. They're, they're ones that, that did things and conceived their own plans. How, does it, how is it stated um, in ver- chapter 30? Ah, stubborn children, declares Yahweh, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. So, so Egypt, I mean, uh, Israel is doing this, Jerusalem is doing this, but that is also what is happening in Assyria. They, even though they were doing God's bidding, are doing it in their way. They're creating their own plans. And it seems like it is Assyria because it says your breath is a fire that will consume you. They're a vicious nation. Assyria was known for the cruelty um, that they would uh, inflict upon their enemies once they were captured. But God says you're going to be burned as if burned to lime. Now, now that means burned beyond recognition, beyond ashes. We have a hint of this both being um, something that is final and, and, and um, as, as extreme as you can be, but also one showing disrespect. In Amos chapter 2, where, in verse 1, where Moab will be punished, quote, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So he did that, and that's why Edom's going to be punished. So or the, 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 that's why uh, Moab will be punished. So this is an extreme punishment. It's, it's a picture for us of total destruction. And that is what's brought over and over and over in Isaiah that God will do to his enemies. He will destroy them completely. They will not rise. But he's also here talking to his people. So the proclamation from Yahweh confirms his dealings also with his people because things change in verse 13. 
Hear, you who are far off, what I have done, and you who are near, acknowledge my might. So the nations who are far away, my people who are close. This is the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 2, doesn't he? That those of you who are not Jews in Ephesians chapter 2, you used to be far off, but you have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been far off from God, away from the covenants, but now through blood of Christ who is making one new man of Jew and Gentile, you've been brought near. It's the same kind of language that's used. And here God is saying, all of you, those who are are nations who are far away, my people, you need to acknowledge and hear and recognize what I have done. Because when you hear what I have done, you will acknowledge my might and my power. So it's another way of acknowledging. The the godly person says, be our strength every morning. The godly person recognizes that, that God is the stability of our times. But for those who are watching and have not yet repented, those who are watching and are headed for destruction even, they are to hear and see what he's done and acknowledge his power. But then sobering words in verse 14. The sinners in Zion are afraid, trembling has seized the godly, godless. So we have this phrase reversed. Sinners and godless are tied together, afraid and trembling are tied together. And this is in Zion. This is God's people. Here's what he's saying to us. He says, sinners in the church be afraid, trembling has seized the godless. It's addressed to his people. And so if we're here this morning and we're holding on to our own sin, if we are characterized and categorized as sinners and godless, we could be here without, with a false profession. And that's a call to us. This is a call to turn. If you are here this morning and this marks you, this marks your life. Even the good things you do are filthy rags in God's mind because they're done out of your own strength and your own idolatry and your own provision. Then this is a call to you. But it's also that loving discipline call from our Father, is it not? Turn. If you're living this way, turn away. If you've got areas in your life that you are embracing this kind of godlessness, then you need to turn away from that. And if the chapter ended here, we'd be left without hope. But the chapter is not ending here, is it? The question comes, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? It's the same language we saw in the last chapter. That it's an everlasting fire. It's an everlasting flame burnings in Jerusalem because God has an altar on which his enemies will be killed. Who can endure that? As the writer of Hebrews says that he is an all-consuming fire. This is the holiness of our God. This is the righteousness of our God. This is who he is. Now, he acts in love and compassion toward his people, but only because this burning, this this, um, in his character to come against sin has already been dealt with in the Messiah, in Jesus himself. So the question comes, who can do this? Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who Who can dwell with the everlasting burnings? And then he tells us exactly who. He gives us a picture of the life of the one who will be able to stand before the holy God and not be consumed. Look at verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. So there are a whole picture of our life and our speech. Who walks righteously 
So everything, that walk being a, a terminology for our life, speaks uprightly, so our words should match that. Our profession and our life should match together. Another description, who despises the gain of oppressions. Now, don't think oppression is we're having to deal with in our wacky world today, where the oppressors are identified and segregated by their skin color. Don't think of that kind of oppression. Don't think of being uh, uh, someone who is oppressed as having a certain skin color or certain sexuality. I mean, we're surrounded with that um, transformed definition of these words. This is biblical oppression. This is the one who is taking advantage of the poor, the widows, the weak. This is the one that throughout the whole Old Testament and the New Testament were admonished that God cares about the weak people, so we should care about them. And the weak people by definition, because of their poverty, because of their status in life, because of their widows, because of their children, because they're orphans, they by definition can be abused by the powerful. And so this is saying, this is saying that uh, the, uh, a person who wants to walk among, before a holy God, who can dwell with a holy God, despises the gain of oppressions. So it, does, it doesn't just stand against it, but it despises the gain. It works against them. That matches the character of a righteous God, does it not? Who is our righteousness and who is our justice? But another description, who shakes his hand lest they hold a bride. I mean, you just picture uh, the, the, the picture you've seen in movies where, you know, the, back in the back alley and somebody's going to pay a bride. And what do they do? They shake hands and what's in the hand? The roll up cash, right, is in the hand. This is the person that feels that and goes, no, and shakes their hand. They're not even going to be close to taking a bribe. They want to do business uprightly. They want to do business in a just manner. Why? Because Yahweh and our Messiah, their kingdom is full of righteousness and justice. You want to dwell in that kingdom with this king, this holy and righteous king? This is what you will be like. Another descriptor who stops his ears from hearing bloodshed and another and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. Turning away from evil. Doesn't want to see the evil stands up against those who are shedding blood and is not a part of it at all, never turns their eyes away from it without acting, but wants their world around them to be in a righteous and just way. And their interaction is what brings about that righteousness and justice. These are the outward actions of one who will dwell with a holy God, a consuming fire. And there's no qualifier, is there? It is just, if this is, who you, if this is who you are, this is what marks the person. The question is asked, who can do that? This person can do it. Verse 16 tells us how. And he will dwell on the heights. On the heights. Now, what do we learn about God? The Lord is exalted for he dwells where? On high. So this is the way of saying you'll dwell with, with God. You will dwell with the Holy One. He who dwells on the high, he will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. That's a way of saying security. What, what has already been prayed for by Isaiah on behalf of these people. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Now, that's the reversal of chapter 30, verse 20, right? Remember the, 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 uh, the bread of adversities and the water of afflictions, That you may walk through the bread of adversities and the water of afflictions, but you will not lose sight of your teacher, chapter 30. So this is the actual reversal of that. These are the promises made. 
Now, what we are assuming, because we have all of Isaiah to look at, is the people who live this way are the people who have repented. They are the people who were praying the prayer with Isaiah in the earlier part of the chapter. They have forsaken their own way. They have waited on Yahweh. They are waiting for Yahweh to exalt himself in blessing and showing mercy to them. This is that group of people. And what do we call this group of people in in Isaiah? We call them the remnant. These are the people that God has redeemed, and he is the people that, is, he, that this is the people that he has set his affections upon, and they will act according to who they are in their faith and trust in Yahweh. We'll come back to this whole idea, but I don't want you to miss the fact that if you are going to dwell with the Holy One, you will walk in a manner worthy of that dwelling. This is the whole idea picked up all the way through the New Testament, isn't it? Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. How are you called? You were called in holiness, Paul says in Ephesians. So we are walking in that manner. Now let's just remind ourselves, we're doing that because that's who we are. Our hearts have been changed, right? Those of us who are justified by faith have been regenerated. We have new hearts. The law is written on our heart. The spirit is within us. God causes us to walk in obedience to his law. This is all what happens in the new covenant, purchased by Christ. So if we are truly justified by faith, our life will look like the good works that Paul talks about in Ephesians that are planned out beforehand. Without those works, our faith is dead. It's like all the wilderness, all the fruitful vegetation that is now desert. All the trees in Lebanon that are now the Arabah, that are desert. That's what it is like. And we know all of this because we're turning our sights now. We've seen it. We've seen the hints. We've seen the hints of the king. We've seen the hints of the kingdom. But now we're turning our sights to the messianic promise. Beginning in verse 17, we've seen these confirmations. A pronouncement against Assyria confirms destruction A prayer for God's people confirms their dependence. A proclamation from Yahweh confirms his dealings. And now we see a promise from Yahweh confirms his people's destiny. Look at verse 17. This person who will walk, who will will ascend the hill in the, the Psalm 15 language. This person who will dwell with the consuming fire, who can dwell with the everlasting burnings. This person who is walking in a way that proves that they are a member of the spiritual kingdom, the messianic kingdom. They will dwell securely. And this is a continuation now with this promise. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. Now, there's some who would say that the king here is the earthly king. That when Hezekiah does what is right, they will see his beauty and his kingship. And I don't think, I I think there's some close future fulfillment in this, but it's not what it's talking about. Because this whole section begins to develop this idea even more that these, the promises that are given to us Just look at verse 22. For Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will save us. 
and the eternal description of the peace and security that's about to come before us. So I think what we're talking about is the messianic kingdom. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. They will see a land that stretches afar, the blessings that come, but maybe a physical land, but definitely we're leaning toward the new Jerusalem here. That's the description that has come before us, a land that stretches afar, full of blessings. Your heart will muse on terror. So in other words, you're, you're going to think, you may even think about that um, wistfully of what used to be and what used to be. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who concerned the t- counted the towers? Now, this is that constant connection with its current 8th century setting, is it not? When the Assyrians came in, there were people that were representatives of Assyria who came in and counted the money, who determined what buildings were going to stand and what buildings were going to fall, who determined um, the, the tribute that when it was brought in, that it was demanded, give us your wealth, and counted it and determined whether it was right, probably took a cut for themselves on the top of it. You're going to think back on that, and you're going to say, where are those people? Remember, we've already talked about that that destruction, Isaiah's already brought the picture, that that destruction that will happen will be like a man in a dream who was thirsty and didn't get thirst, didn't get a drink or was hungry and didn't get food. It will be in the past. It will be remembered as if it's a dream. And so in this, you may muse on that terror in the past, but now what is your situation? You are secure. You're the person who dwells on the heights. The place of defense will be the fortress of the rocks. The bread will be given him. His water will be sure. Verse 19. We're talking about this destiny that God promises his people. And this is the section, the destiny in which they feast on the king's beauty while meditating on their deliverance from what was. It continues... In verse 19, you will see no more the insolent people, there again the Assyrians, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend. That's the way they've been described before. This is literally a people too deep of leap, too deep of lip to hear. That's the that's the, the picture that's given that they cannot comprehend in this foreign language, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. All of that is remembering in the past. And it's not going to be anymore. It's, it's, it is completely past not to come again. Now, they're using 8th century pictures of Assyria, right? But yet after Assyria comes another nation, and then comes another nation, and then comes another nation. And there's always oppression until God's people are in God's place. The final place of God's people in the New Jerusalem. So he's using these close fulfillments to lead our minds to the far fulfillment. A promise from Yahweh confirms these people's destiny, secondly, in which they live in the new Jerusalem. This is where we're sure. We might have been tempted to think, well, it's not talking about the ultimate reality yet, but in verse 20 through 22, we are definitely talking about that. So this destiny of his people in which they live in the new Jerusalem, which will not be moved, and in which the Messiah will be present for his people. Look at verse 20. Behold... Remember, that's drawing our attention to it. Behold, take note of, look at, see, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. 
So there's again this security. And now it's called the Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem never felt that security after, after David and Solomon. They never felt it again. They don't feel it to this day. But we know that the new Jerusalem is the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament. And that's what we're being brought to. This security as a tent that is never be, going to be picked up and moved. Now we might think... Okay, well, then that tent is limited. There's only a certain amount of people that can be in that tent because the stakes are put in. But Isaiah is going to develop this a little further. Turn to chapter 54. Just to lead us a little bit more to make sure we completely understand this picture. Verse 1 of Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says Yahweh. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will peep and, and will people the desolate cities. The ultimate promise of God's people. So within the immovable tent are all of our tents. And there's room for everyone. God, Jesus went away and, and prepared rooms for us, right? There is room for all of us. So it's the promise of the gospel that we are seeing right here. That God is acting in such a way that your eyes will see your salvation. And it will not be moved. But verse 21, we should just take this and, and put it on our foreheads. But there Yahweh in majesty will be for us. What a great promise, is that not? Our God is for us. He is on our side. He works on our behalf. He works for his people. All the protection comes for his people. The beauty of salvation comes for his people. He sends his son to die for his people. All of his people will end up in the new Jerusalem. Jesus will not lose any of them. None will fall away. There is all of the promises that God makes are yes and amen in Christ himself. And so he is for us. There is an endless contemplation of this verse for us. And we take the for us and the beholding the beauty of our king and we have meditation material for the rest of our lives which we'll come back to look at verse 20 21 but there Yahweh in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go no majestic ship can pass for Yahweh is our judge Yahweh is our lawgiver and Yahweh is our king he will save us so the picture here the first um, nautical metaphor we have is a picture of broad rivers broad streams in which no ship can come up now I, can, we, I think we can take that both ways there is no need for ships of war to defend because God is our defender and there will be no ships of war come and bring soldiers into that new Jerusalem both will be true because the new Jerusalem is marked out by the fact that only God's people are there nobody with sin nobody who is immoral can enter into the new Jerusalem they are stopped before they enter so this is another way of talking about that stability and that safety for God's people and what a place to live he's our judge our lawgiver and our king and he will save us 
Now, in, when we look at the book of Judges that are earthly judges, what is the purpose of those judges? God gives the judges to do what? To save Israel. That's exactly what those scriptures say, that God gives the judges. You can see this in Judges 2.16. The judges are give, given to save Israel. So when we see our salvation coming from one who is our judge, one who is our lawgiver, one is our, who is our king, and everything he does is what? Righteous and just, and we are in his kingdom, what a better place to live. We, we know that when he judges, it will be righteous. We will never suffer at the hands of bad judges. We know that we, under his reign, that every law he gives is for our benefit and for our favor and for his glory. He is our king, which means he rules over the kingdom that has expanding lands and that no enemy can come into. This is clearly talking about the new heavens and the new earth when we reside in the new Jerusalem. Now, do we have a foretaste of that now? Absolutely we do. It's not perfect, but we have a foretaste. We have a foretaste in our own life of what it means to live secure in Christ even when we're walking through danger in the world. Right? Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't matter. We know that our God is with us and he is for us. And we are meditating upon his beauty and we are praying that his strength is our strength every morning. That is our life here. And even though they slay us, even though we die, our reward is to be with Jesus. And there will come a day when there will be no more battle to fight. But in this day, we get a taste of what's promised in the new heavens and new earth. And that taste will propel us. So these promise, this promise from Yahweh confirming their destiny, the third aspect of that confirmation, their destiny in which their sins will be forgiven through no work of their own. Verse 23 and 24, your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sail spread out. Then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey and... No inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Now, many people say that verse 23 is talking about Assyria again, that Assyria is going to be laid so waste that they're, they're going to be like a ship, that their cords hang loose, they can't, they can't hold their mast in place, they can't keep their, their sails spread out, they're useless, and even the lame of God's people will come in and take his spoils because they won't be able to defend But I think this is talking about God's people. We don't need to have a fit nautical machine. We we don't need, we can let our defenses lie in the uh, uh, unusable, tied up at the dock. We can let them lie unusable. Why? Because God is our strength. Because he's made promises to keep us. He is our fortress. He will keep us safe. He is our salvation. He's our wisdom. He's our knowledge. All these promises that have been made The prey and the spoil, God will give that. He will divide that. Even the lame will be able to get God's spoils from wherever he moves because he is the one providing it. We are not. And what what do some of those spoils look like? The and connects 23 and 24. It's It's not talking about opposites. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. Well, I don't know when we're going to not be able to say I'm sick until we get to New Jerusalem and there will be no more death and dying. There'll be no more because sin is a result of the, or sickness is a result of the fall. I'm not saying that every time you're sick, it's because of your sin. I'm saying that when sin entered the world, so did sickness, so did death. 
And there's only one time that that is going to be completely away from us, that we will, the inhabitant, and if you're inhabiting the new Jerusalem, you are God's people, otherwise you're barred, you will say, I no longer say I'm sick, and the people who dwell there will be forgiven. They will have their iniquity carried away, is literally what the Hebrew says. It brings in mind that scapegoat of, of Leviticus, where the, the sins are figuratively placed on the goat and sent out into the wilderness. It brings that kind of forgiveness uh, in our minds that their iniquity will be forgiven well full of promises here for us to take the character of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and meditate on our king who is full of beauty should keep us engaged with the scriptures the rest of our life because when we think about everything that God has done in Christ and his spirit is working through us, every bit of it is beautiful to us who are his people. Because he is the proper and righteous king and judge and lawgiver who has saved us. There's no end to the scriptures that describe the character of our God that keep us engaged with him in prayer. There's no end to that. And what keeps us engaged as we walk through the world is we know that he is for us. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He has sent us, Jesus has sent us on his mission to accomplish what he wants to do. And the spirit is carrying out the will of God the Father through us to give glory to Jesus. That is our mission in life. So when we can say there Yahweh and majesty will be for us, we know that we're protected in all situations. And I want you to notice how Isaiah is marrying future promise with present obedience. Do you see how he's doing that? He's saying you need to be obedient now because this is your future. And if you are obedient now, it gives evidence that you are his and this will be your future. So future blessing is used for motivation for present obedience. Now remember where we started here. We started by reminding ourselves that believers, that we could have lost people do good things and have good earthly results. But believers, it's a product of who we are in Christ, because now we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now we are being conformed in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And the works that we are doing that are good, that please him, they're God's works that we're walking in, that we're carrying out, that he planned beforehand. So those works are pleasing to him. They're not filthy rags. They're pleasing to him because we're doing it in his strength, recognizing his security, recognizing our place in his kingdom. And so this is the kind of thing that we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper every single time we come, isn't it? We are reminding ourselves what has been done in the past, that Jesus Christ came as the perfect God-man. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was raised again, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning spiritually in the hearts of his people right now with perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And we're remembering that work which provides for us the promises of the future, provides for us those future promises as motivation for obedience now. Because now our role is to crucify sin so that we are conformed into the image and likeness of Christ. And so we come to the Lord's table together to remember the work that has been done, but also to remember the promises that we have before us. Because the Bible constantly hangs out as motivation for us, the beauty of God exalting himself to show mercy to his people, and that will be ultimately fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. All of that is tied up here. So we are considering at the Lord's table the king and his beauty, the beauty of his sacrifice, the beauty of his suffering, the beauty of his resurrection, the beauty of his exaltation, the beauty of his promises, 
The beauty of the provision that he gives. When we are remembering that the Lord is for us, we're remembering that right here in the supper. How is he first and foremost for us? He is our righteousness. He died on our behalf. He suffered the wrath of God and died in our place so that we could have life that leads to those promises. So we're remembering that he was for us on the cross and he's for us now because he will never leave or forsake us here. He will not lose any that the Father has given him and he promises to return again. And so we are looking not only to the cross but to his second coming when those blessings are completed for us and we are no longer sick We no longer live in the consequences of our sin. And we are together face to face beholding the beauty of our God forever. Take a few moments. Prepare your hearts to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're serving this morning, come forward.